0: Luke 15, 1-10 Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here set my clock running here. Usually people set a timer so they don't go long. I, usually, I generally have to set a timer to remind myself I have more time and I should slow down. I just get so excited. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Cook, and uh, it is a true blessing for me to be part of this community, and once in a while to get up and be able to speak to you all. So it is lovely to see you all here today. I'm happy to be here. In this, uh, in this particular passage of Luke, I think one of the things you can draw from this passage is to talk about how we think about God, how we view God in our own mind. There's many things, many layers to most of these passages, but I think that's what I want to focus on today, because I think what I want to propose to you is that how we think about God affects how we follow God, and how we follow God affects how we reflect God to the rest of the world as Christians. There's a domino effect there, and so how we think about God becomes very, very important. It's about discipleship, really. So, earlier this summer, again, for those of you who don't know me, I'm actually in my third year of the Master of Divinity program at Bethel Seminary. And earlier this year, and during the summer course, I took a class on uh, spiritual formation in which the professor provided us with a PowerPoint that listed a bunch of different pictures of gods and had us react to that and talked a lot about this. So, when I got this passage and realized this is what I was going to be preaching on, I thought, great, I'll break out that PowerPoint. It's going to be awesome. It'll be, and, and, and we don't have screens. So... But that's okay because necessity is the mother invention, right? So what I decide I'm going to do is I'm going to do what I'm going to call an Amish PowerPoint. Keep it simple. And I'm not ripping on the Amish. The Amish are great. I I love the Amish. But I'm going to hold up a couple of pictures and I'm going to walk them down the aisle so you all can see them. What I want you to do is focus on the depiction of God and your gut instinctual reaction, your emotional reaction. We won't get real theological for a little bit here. But just look at the picture and notice how you react to it, Okay. So this first one most of you will recognize, or many of you will recognize, is from Michelangelo's piece on the Sistine Chapel. He painted the Genesis creation story, and this is God creating the sun and the moon. So set aside for a moment that God is almost always in these works of art depicted as an old white man. That's another sermon altogether. But notice the look on his face. Notice his countenance. Notice his bearing. Notice the fact that he appears rather buff and strong. And ask yourself, as you look at this image, if you think of a God of love and mercy and joy and peace, is this the kind of God you picture? Or is there a dissonance there? Think about that for a minute. Now, I'm going to show you a second picture. And this is a, a reprint of a Rembrandt painting that's meant to depict the story of the Prodigal Son. Interestingly enough, we're looking at Luke 15, 1 through 10 here. Verse 11 begins the story of the prodigal son. Jesus actually tells three parables in a row, trying to depict one portion of God. So look at the old man here that's meant to depict God. Look at the look on his face as he embraces his younger son. Look at his body language. And what's your gut, instinctual, emotional reaction to that? And think about a God who is so hates sin that is so filled with wrath that he needs to vent it somewhere and ends up venting it on his son in order to lead to our salvation. Is this the kind of image of God that you would think of? Or is there there dissonance there? You notice that your, your gut reactions to those images? How we think about God affects how we follow God. And how we follow God affects how we reflect God to the rest of the world. And I think that is a big part of what Jesus is trying to get at in this passage. So there's three main questions that I want to talk about from the text itself. First question we have to answer is, who exactly is Jesus talking to? Because there's multiple perspectives there. The second piece of information we need to understand is how Jesus is speaking to them and what the effects of that are. And the third question is then, of course, what do we here in 2019, what are we able to draw from a text Jesus speaking to people in the first century, okay? So question number one, who is Jesus talking to? Well, there's three possible answers there, I think. If you look at the text in your liturgy, in verse two, it says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That word them there in the Greek is a word autois, or the root word is autos. It just means them, not a lot of layers to it. But if you look in verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable, same word there, them. So if you wanted to get hermeneutical interpretive about it, you could circle those two thems and draw a line between them and say, well, in verse 2, them is referring to the sinners and probably the tax collectors. So in verse 3, maybe them refers to that same thing. So Jesus is telling these parables to the sinners and the tax collectors. You could argue that. You could also argue that if you look at the first half of verse 2 again, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the ones muttering you ever wanted to say something, but you know you probably shouldn't, and so you sort of mutter out of the side of your mouth, but you do it just loud enough that you're pretty sure the other person that isn't, maybe shouldn't hear it is going to hear it? I kind of think that's what the Pharisees are doing here. So if the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the ones doing the muttering, maybe they're the one that needs the lesson from Jesus, right? So maybe the them in that third verse isn't referring to the sinners and tax collectors, but is referring to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You could argue that. I think there's a third option, and I think it's the more likely of the three. Is Jesus talking to the sinners and the tax collectors? Yep. Is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Yep. Is Jesus talking to anybody and everybody within earshot? Yep. And generally, when you find—because they all kind of have the same issue that he wants to address. It may be in different ways, but it's at, the same, at the root, it's the same issue. And when you find a, piece of pa- a passage of Scripture where Jesus is to be talking to everybody— then there's a really high likelihood that he's talking to us here and now too. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So if he's talking to everybody with an earshot, what exactly is he doing? How is he trying to speak to them? We've got parables, right? Parables are stories. Stories are word pictures. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a parable, a story, is a way to try and paint an image in people's minds that goes beyond the actual words themselves. And so what Jesus is trying to do is tell them the story that whatever their view of God is God is actually much bigger, much more expansive, much more loving, much more beautiful than anything they can possibly imagine. But what he's fighting against is that there's this very strong conventional wisdom of this is what God is. Period. Paragraph. Now if you're the Pharisees, or you're the teachers of the law, God is the giver of the law. God makes the rules. God judges those that break the rules as those that follow the rules better than everybody else. God's favor rests upon those folks, right? Which is convenient if you're a Pharisee or a teacher of the law because you have money and you have power and therefore you must be following the law better than everybody else. And it's too bad that those tax collectors have to act unethically in order to make their money and that the poor people remain poor. But if they followed the law a little bit better, they'd be just fine. God's favor would rest upon them as well. How the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and the teachers of the law, how those folks view God, affects how they follow God, affects how they reflect God to everybody else. You see how that domino effect works? Interestingly, if you're a tax collector, you might see God the same way in this legalistic viewpoint, the rule giver and the bestower of favor upon those who, do, who follow the law best. You might think that as well, just from the other side of the lens, right? You weren't born into the priestly class. You didn't start with a bunch of money. But the Romans come along and offer you a position that can make you a bunch of money. And sure, you kind of have to mess with the poor people to get that extra money. But hey, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing, have a bunch of money, and they seem to be doing pretty well, so why can't I have mine too? And boy, it's too bad that those poor people have to remain poor. But if they followed the law a little bit better, then God's favor would rest upon them, and they'd be better off. How they view God. How they follow God affects how they reflect God to everybody else. The domino effect. Now, if you're one of the poor folks, maybe you're a zealot. Maybe you view God as a warrior deity, right? God's going to send the Messiah. The Messiah's going to raise an army. The army's going to overthrow the Romans. And you know what? There's some other people in that area that we're not too sure we like. So let's go ahead and take them over, too. And we're going to rule the way God wants us to rule. We're going to solve our problems with violence because that's the kind of warrior God that God is. The problem is that when you view God through that kind of narrow lens as the warrior deity, you've now reduced God from the ever-expansive version that we know and love to a warrior deity, to the same kind of thing that Horus was, to the same kind of thing Baal was, Kamash, Yam, any of the other ancient Near Eastern warrior deities. God now is right in the mix with them, just another one of them. And if you follow a God that solves big-picture problems with violence, then how are you likely to solve small-picture problems in everyday life? Probably with violence. How you view God affects how you follow God, affects how you reflect God to everybody else. So this is what Jesus is trying to fight uphill against. Jesus is trying to shake these folks out of this conventional wisdom, out of this standard way of viewing God, and trying to reveal a God that's much bigger, much more beautiful, much more expansive than what they can imagine in order to do that, he's got to shake them up a little bit. And that's where the parables come in and how he structures the parables is very important. First of all, he uses very unlikely protagonists in these two parables, if you think about it. In the parable of the lost sheep, the person that stands in for God is a shepherd. In the parable of the lost coin, the person that stands in for God is a woman. Now, in that culture, in that time, in that place, neither shepherds nor women were very highly thought of. Shepherds didn't own the sheep. They worked for somebody else that owned the sheep. They didn't make a ton of money. Nobody was inviting a shepherd to a dinner party because after they'd been with livestock all day, guess what they smelled like? Nobody wanted them around. Women in that time and place, we know, weren't very highly thought of. Couldn't own property, couldn't testify in court, couldn't divorce their husbands, who could very easily divorce them. And yet here's Jesus representing God in these two stories as a shepherd and as a woman. If you're a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, your brain is now leaking out your ear. He's just literally blown your mind. How in the world can you compare God to these lowly members of society? Well, what are you doing? Right away, he's got them off balance. Right away, he's got them out of their comfort zone. Right away, he's got them thinking about something other than their conventional view of God. And then he hits them again by having these unconventional protagonists do things that don't really make sense. If You look at the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The implication is, of course he does. What else would he do? But Think about that. If you're a shepherd, you don't own these sheep, you're watching them for somebody else who's not going to be happy if you lose one, but is really not going to be happy if after going to find the one that you lost, you lose four more to predators or to other shepherds that come and steal them because you left the 99 in the open country all by themselves. So are you really going to leave 99 out in a vulnerable position to go get one? Or are you going to say, you know what, 99 is better than like 93? So sorry about the one that's lost, but I'm going to take care of these ones and make sure nobody else gets lost. That would seem to be the logical decision to me. And yet Jesus presents the obvious logical conclusion. Of course you go after the one. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In the parable of the lost coin, it says, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. You have 10 coins and you lose one. Are you really turning your house upside down to find the one lost coin and then throwing a party that probably costs more than the coin you just found? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And yet Jesus, again, presents this decision as the obvious logical decision. So he uses unconventional protagonists and this weird sense of logic and hyperbole Again, to shake these people up, get them out of their comfort zone, and try to get them to see God as much bigger and much more expansive and much more in general than they think God is. Now, put a pin in those unconventional decisions. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But if how you think about God affects how you follow God, and how you follow God affects how you reflect God to the rest of the world, then again, how you think about God becomes supremely important. And that's where I want to pivot to as we start to talk about what there is for us here today in 2019, in this passage. Three things I want to focus on. One, again, I think we today are just as susceptible to having too narrow a view of God as the folks that Jesus was talking to in this time. and place. It can happen. What I'm going to try and tell you is that you cannot put God in a box and label it no matter how articulate your label is and put it up on the shelf and think, I'm good. I've got a pretty good idea what God's all about. As soon as you do that, you've limited God. And anything that limits God reduces God from who he rightly should be. And that's coming from somebody, look, you have to understand the gene pool that I come from. My mother's going to listen to this podcast and she's going to be okay with this story, I hope. But here's, here's my mom in general. So if you go to my mom's desk, there's a bin for the big paper clips, and there's a bin for the little paper clips. Because sometimes you need a big paper clip, and sometimes you need a little paper clip, and you don't want to have to go picking through a bunch of paper clips to find what you need. This is my mom's mentality. And some of those genes filtered their way down into me. So I have bookshelves in my apartment at home, and the books are in specific spots for specific reasons. When I need to find a certain book, I want to know where to go. Beyond that, hesitate to tell this story. So I have a box set of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? I don't know how many of you know this, but, you know, obviously C.S. Lewis published those books in a certain order. And then one day a kid wrote him and said, well, wait a minute. The stuff that happens in The Magician's Nephew technically takes place before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Shouldn't we change the order of those books up? And C.S. Lewis, being a nice guy, wrote the kid back and said, sure, yeah, that makes nothing but sense. You're probably right. Well, after C.S. Lewis's death, the publisher got a hold of that letter to the kid, I have no idea how, and went, well, this must be how C.S. Lewis actually wanted these books ordered. I'm not sure that's actually true. I think he was just being nice to the kid. But if you go and find a box set now, they will have them often in that kid's order. But my brain says, no, they should be in the order that they were published because there's things in the one book that were back to the other. No. So I would literally pull them out and I will reorder them the way that I think they should I'm totally into putting stuff into certain orders in certain places because that's how my brain works. But I had to learn I can't do that with God. As soon as I start doing that with God, I've lost the plot. I've reduced God to something less than what God actually is. And as soon as you do that, you cost yourself as much as anything. I think part of that is what Jesus is trying to tell us here today. As soon as you think God is X, Y, or Z, you've missed something. Widen your gaze. God is more expansive, more loving, more beautiful than anything we can possibly imagine. That's one thing we can take from this. Another thing that we can take from this is that God thinks that you, 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 and every single person in this room is worth pursuing. This is where we're going to go back to that pin I put in those unconventional decisions he had these characters making in these stories. The reason that that makes nothing but perfect sense for God, where it didn't necessarily for us in our human finite logic. Remember, we're finite human beings trying to understand an infinite being. And if anything's close to impossible, that might be it. But the trick is that that shouldn't be a negative thing, right? Right? The temptation is to say that if we can't get our arms all the way around who God is, then why even try to figure any of it out? I think that's a natural human reaction. But where I want to try and pivot the perspective a little bit is to say, if you've ever been out in the country, away from the city, light pollution, at night, cloudless night, and looked up at the stars and seen this enormous blanket of stars, and stopped and thought that every single one of those pinpricks of light is akin to our sun and may have planets revolving around it, maybe it's part of some system. And then stop and think that that patch of sky that you can see as you stand out there in the country is a postage stamp on the Sahara Desert when it comes to the enormity of the universe. I mean, it blows your mind. You can't really get your mind all the way around it, and yet the inspiration in that case is one of awe. It's astounding, it's astonishing. It's amazing that here we are on a planet in this enormous universe and God cares about each and every single one of us. That's what I want to say. When you look at God and think, well, I can't get my arms all the way around it. Why even bother trying? No, you can't get your arms all the way around it. Look at the universe. Look at the amazing breadth and depth of life that God has created. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awe inspiring? It shouldn't be a negative. It should inspire us to want to know more. And if we can't learn everything, okay, fine. Let's try and learn as much as we can because it's amazing the depth and breadth that is available to us as followers of God. God thinks that each and every single one of you are worth pursuing. That's why when God goes after the one sheep and leaves the 99 in the open country, it's not illogical because she's God. She can do that. She can look after the 99 as she looks after the one. When God turns the house upside down to find a lost coin, she can do that because God has an inexhaustible supply of love and joy and concern and caring. That's why it makes sense. That's what Jesus is trying to shake these people out of their conventional wisdom and see, here's this bigger, more expansive idea of God, and I'm only telling you about this one little point, and it takes me three stories to do it. Imagine how big and how beautiful God must be if it takes three stories to tell you this one little piece there's a temptation in Western culture to think individually a lot, right? We have this rugged individualism in Western culture. We're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not asking for help because we're going to do it ourselves. We should do for ourselves whatever we can. And I'm not necessarily completely knocking that, but what I would point out is that in the early church, they didn't think about individual relationships with God the way that we do. They thought about the community. They thought about a corporate relationship. And so when we think individually about God, we miss a lot of the stuff that's here in the Bible in terms of how the early church interacted with Jesus and interacted with God. But in this particular case, I do want to say it's okay to think individually. Because when we start thinking about why did Jesus die for us, why did Jesus die for our salvation, that us and that are tends to be plural, right? We think about that communally. We think about that corporately. Because if you have to stop and think about it individually... You have to stop and think that Jesus died for you, for you, for you. You know, you start thinking about it that way, your own brain's going to start leaking out your ear. If each and every one of us were the only persons left on earth, Jesus, God would still have taken human form in Jesus, still would have suffered, still would have died, because there is no length that God will not go to to bring one person back into the fold. There is no amount of energy, because She has an inexhaustible supply. There's no amount of energy. There's no amount of effort God will not go to. And that's the story of the cross. God will take human form. God will be tortured and God will be killed if that's what it takes to get us back onto the path that leads to eternal life. Sin, remember, is just missing the mark. That's the literal interpretation of the Hebrew word for sin, just missing the mark. Of course, the further you go down a path, having missed a mark, the further off the mark you're going to be. But there is no length God will not go to to bring you back to that path. And once you're back to that path, there's great rejoicing in heaven. That's what I think God is trying to, or Jesus is trying to tell us here now through these stories. And these stories are dripping with joy, right? Look through the verses, and you can circle all the words that have to do with joy. In verse 5, The shepherd joyfully puts the lost sheep on his shoulders. In verse 6, the shepherd asks his friends to rejoice with him. Rejoicing just means to feel or show great joy. Verse 9, the woman asks her friends to rejoice with her. Verse 10, there is rejoicing among the angels. As adults, I think it's really easy to lose our sense of just pure, innocent joy, which is one of the reasons it's so much fun to be down in the kids' rooms, because kids haven't lost that at all. Those of you who know me know that I'm an enormous baseball fan. I was just at the ball game last night. Not a good ninth inning. And, you know, like last night, when I'm, it, the job that I have allows me media credentials, and so I get to sit up in the press box, and I have my computer, and I have, lap, and I have my iPad, and I have my scorecard, and I have my multicolor pen, which is very important for keeping score. <clears throat> and I have all that, and that's how, I mean, I love engaging with baseball that way. A few weeks ago, I took my five-year-old nephew to a game. Now, a five-year-old is not going to allow me to break out a laptop and an iPad and a multicolored pen with a scorecard because he doesn't care about that stuff. He just doesn't. He wants cotton candy. He wants a hot dog. He wants to run around. He wants to go play. And we actually spent most of the game, to be honest with you, there's a new spot that they created just inside Gate 34 off on the plaza. If you're thinking of how the field sets up, it's beyond the right field wall there. And it's a big, you know, AstroTurf area, and it's got bag toss games, and big Connect Four games, and just it's an area for families to go and run around, and there's so many different places at that ballpark to do anything but watch baseball. It's actually astounding. But we spent most of the time there. So I I bought him this bag of cotton candy, and I was playing Matador with him for about 25 minutes, where I'd hold it out, and he'd come running and charging at it, and I'd whip it away at the last minute, and he was howling, laughing. And as we're doing this, there's literally other kids gathering around just to watch. Make no sense to me whatsoever, but they were just smiling and laughing and howling, and And it suddenly struck me that being at a baseball game, as much as I enjoy being there with my laptop and my iPad and my scorecard and my multicolor pen, can be a source of joy in completely another way. And seeing this five-year-old howling, laughing, and squealing, and having fun as we played in this area and not watched a second of the game reminded me of that innocence and that pureness of that joy. And so when there's joy dripping throughout this verse or this passage, I think Jesus is trying to tell us God is a God of love. I just said you can't label God and put it on a shelf, so how can I say God is love, right? Well, there's a reason the Greeks had six different words for love or seven different words. Love is a big concept. And one aspect of love is joy. As God, with an inexhaustible supply, wants to pour love into our lives and inspire rejoicing in the heavens and rejoicing in our own lives we get filled up to the point where the hope is, the plan is, that that love and that joy gets poured out onto other people. And the beauty of it is, no matter how much love and joy we pour out onto others, God has an inexhaustible supply to pour into us. God is a God of love. God is a God of joy. God is a God who wants relationship with his people. How we think about God affects how we follow God. How we follow God affects how we reflect God to the rest of the world. Somebody say amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If, you, if have you have any questions, questions or would
1: like, like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.